This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to this edition of Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. I'm your host, Alan Pierce. I'm with the law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. I'm here this day with my co-host and my son and my law partner, Judson Pierce. And today is the uh, second of a two-part series dealing with the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks on 9-11 as we recently observed the 20th anniversary of this tragic event in our nation's history. Our previous guest on Workers' Comp Matters was Ken Feinberg, appointed by President George W. Bush as the special master of the Victim Compensation Fund. Today, we are privileged to be joined by attorney Leo Boyle, a nationally known trial attorney with the Boston firm of Meehan, Boyle, Black, and Bogdanow. Leo is a graduate of Harvard University and Boston College Law School, and on that fateful day was president of ATLA, the Association of Trial Lawyers of America, now known as AAJ, the American Association of Justice. Along with Kenneth Feinberg, Leo played a prominent role in helping to form Trial Lawyers Care, a massive pro bono effort to assist the families and victims of 9-11 to receive compensation from the newly enacted Victim Compensation Fund, or VCF. Leo, welcome to Workers' Compensation Matters. Well, thank you very much for having me on, uh, Judson and Alan. It's a privilege to be on your show. First thing, I want to give you a shout out, Alan, for your service to the bar and uh, to the people we represent. You're a you're a legend in the workers' comp field, and you've uh, done so, so much for MATA. So I want to thank you for that. It's very much in keeping with the public service we're talking about today. Yeah, well, Leo, coming from you especially, I appreciate that very much. You know, Leo, we're we're both about the same age, so we we didn't uh, live through December seventh of forty one, but we certainly have lived through November twenty second of sixty three, and of course September eleventh of two thousand one is this generation's and our generation's date that uh, we all will remember to the day we die, and more importantly, we will remember exactly where we were when we heard this news. Where were you? I was I was at home with my family. When it came on television and I saw the second tower hit on television. And so I, I got my car and I, I headed to the office because I, I realized that everything had just changed for our way of life and our country. And I realized this has to affect the legal system. There's got to be a major impact on the legal system. And maybe the legal system can have a major impact on this. And so I headed to my office and I got a call from the office that the FBI was in our building. So our building was shut down. So I headed back to my mother's nursing home, actually, to sit and try to explain it to her what had happened. And so I, I got a pretty vivid memory of, of that morning. You were the new president of ATLA at the time. Describe for us the nature of that organization and what were your initial thoughts about the legal challenges that would likely emanate from this tragedy? Well, we are formed to preserve the right to trial by jury unencumbered by special interest legislative favors for industry or insurance companies. That's that's the raison d'etre of 
ADLA, as I used to call it, I still do, honestly, and now the American Association for Justice. That's that's what we do. We educate each other. We collaborate on cases, just as when MATA uh, was formed for the very same reasons. And what it positioned us to do was because of all the legislative fights we had gone through, we had very good friends on the Hill. And so we had access to go in and make a pitch for a a solution to begin the healing after 9-11, which is exactly what we did. And we we started on September 12th because by September 12th, the airline lobbyists were already in Washington lobbying for complete tort protections for the entire aviation industry, cutting off everybody's rights. So our first executive committee meeting of ATLA was on the 12th of September. And that's when we began to form a game plan. And within a matter of days, we do, well, specifically Wednesday, September 19th, I was in DC. I went down the night of the 18th. Logan had just opened a day or two earlier. So I went down to DC. And on the 19th, we sat down with Dick Gephardt in his office. He was then the Democratic leader on the House side. And in between the 11th and the 19th, the executive committee had come up with a plan to put into place, if we could get it, a, a compensation fund for the victims of 9-11. We didn't announce it until after the legislation passed. Uh, we plan to do all of the work for free. And one of the facts that's, that's lost on a lot of people is that one of the airlines had $1.5 billion in coverage, and the other had $1.7 billion in coverage. So that's a total of $3.2 billion. But the property damage on the ground was more like $50 billion to $75 billion. There were 3,000 deaths. There were another two to 3,000 personal injuries. So it, it's a very sort of rough analogy, but it would be... We've all gotten those cases in where you have an intersection accident, person runs a red light and kills your client, and the person has a 2040 policy. That's exactly what we were confronted with after 9-11, except on a massive scale. So we had to do something. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad you framed it this way. As Ken Feinberg wrote in his book, What Is Life Worth?, which detailed his role and the the overall response by Congress and by the lawyers to this event. It's also depicted in the Netflix film Worth. And as he told us in his podcast with us uh, not too long ago, along with providing compensation for the victim, participation in the fund also carried with it the agreement by the recipients of the claimants that they could not and would not be able to file any injury or death lawsuits against as you mentioned, the airlines, the World Trade Center, among others. And as you were getting into this, somewhat seems counterintuitive to the mission of Adler in the constitutional rights for jury trial for victims and access for trial by jury. So flesh that out a little bit more for us. How was it that Adler sprung into action to do something that would avoid lawsuits? You are like a laser. Let me start by saying that because I grew up in Adler. I joined in 19... 19- I became a lawyer in 1971. I joined ATLA in 1973. And growing up in ATLA, what our mantra was, we seek no quarter and we give no quarter. We, we, we never compromise on the jury system. So you're absolutely right. 
that this was ingrained in us that the right to trial by jury is inviolate. But this was different because if we left everything to the jury system, first of all, the property damage and the subrogation claims would have eaten up all of the insurance on the airlines and the uh, security companies and the airports. It would have been a Pyrrhic victory. And the executive committee of ATLA back then had, in my view, had the courage to say, we're going to step aside from our usual approach on this. And every decision has to be made for the betterment and for the protection of these families. And we can't protect them through the traditional jury system. And, and the way I looked at it, this was not a mass tort. It was a mass murder. And once you start looking at what it really was, now, th- there were claims that could be carved out on inadequate security and the like. Not a single one of those out of thousands of cases ever went to trial. Everything went through the fund or, or settled apart from the fund. I love that you have honed in just like you did because that was a huge issue. And we had members, the aviation lawyers, were very upset about the fund. They came around and ended up representing families under the uh, under the fund. And we had a lot of people who were afraid, will this become a template for medical mal in the future, for products in the future, for, for transportation torts in the future? But we were in the moment. And the one thing we knew is that we had 3,000 deaths and we couldn't leave them un compensated. So we took a, a, a big, scary step for us and said, we're going to go with an alternate system for this. Now, if you didn't accept the fund, you could sue the airlines. Uh, you could go forward against the airlines. You, you would be capped at the $3.2 billion of their insurance, but you could sue them. You could sue all the security companies. You could sue whoever you wanted to. But people came to understand that that was a it would have been a Pyrrhic victory. You could also sue the terrorists and the, and the countries uh, that, that harbored the, the terrorists, whether or not you went to the fund. So we gave people a choice, but my strong urge was for people to go to the fund. And the reason is this. I don't know comp well. You all and your, your listeners know it inside out. In this fund, there are no specific benefits for different injuries and harms. If you if you read the statute, it's the most liberal wrongful death and personal injury statute you will ever read. It's even got hedonic damages in there. Now, the reason it's so liberal is that we wrote it. Atla wrote it. A guy named Dan Cohen, the late Dan Cohen, who's passed away, wonderful human being. He wrote the fund. And on uh, Wednesday, the 19th of September, I was at Tommy Boggs's office with Linda Lipson the draft of the fund came in by fax. We sent it over to Tom Daschle in the Senate and Dick Gephardt. They were up all night, Wednesday night, in committee. We got everything we wanted, every single thing we wanted. So it was wide open, no caps, no limitation, no caps even on attorney's fees. And the, the reason we wanted no caps on attorney's fees is that we didn't want that to become a template in, in federal law. Now, we didn't tell anybody until after Congress passed it, we're going to do it for free anyway. And we got a lot of pushback from some of our detractors up in Congress about, you know, we've got to cap the lawyers. They're going to make all kinds of money on this. 
And, you know, I took a lot of pleasure after the bill passed at about 11 p.m. Friday, September 21st. A letter went out over my signature to the members of Congress saying, by the way, we're uh, going to do this for free. And it turned out we the fund paid seven billion dollars. You know, compare that to the three point two that would have been available for everything, including property damage. Property damage could not go to the fund, just personal injury and wrongful death. So we got uh, huge awards. There were four and five million dollar awards. I don't have the figure off the top of my head for the average award, but they were very, very generous. And the people who were afraid that the fund would become a template for some kind of tort reform, what happened was the fund was so generous and Ken Feinberg did such a marvelous job administering it. That Congress wouldn't pass another, they didn't want to pass another one because it, you didn't have to prove fault. You just had to prove you were harmed or your loved one was killed on 9-11. So it, we took advantage of a no huddle offense and went at it really hard between Wednesday morning, the 19th, and it was 60 hours from the time we put it into play until the time it came out of the house at 11 p.m. on Friday. Yeah, and Leo, what you described in in very uh, neat detail is uh, the value of a national organization because, uh, you know, lawyers are, for the most part, anywhere from sole practitioners to small partnerships to medium and large-sized firms in each and every state. So tell me, you know, through ATLA, you formed an organization within ATLA to to do this. Uh, Tell us about uh, TLC. Sure, sure. And uh, just for your, for your listeners, I mean, for your membership dollar, one of the things you get is probably the most powerful single lobbyist in Washington, D.C., Linda Lipson. She's the CEO of ADLA. So if anybody wonders, well, should I pay my membership this year? And should, should I stay in ADLA? You're not going to leverage your, your money any better than the, than the might that she brings to the Hill. Without Linda... We wouldn't have had that access and that credibility. When she knocks on the door of Dick Gephardt, he opens the door and listens. And so did Tom Daschle. And, 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 and that's how we got what we did. And so Friday night, the, the 19th, uh, I'm sorry, the 21st, it came out of the house around 11. I remember I was sitting on my suitcase in Logan. I had flown home. Carlton Carl from Atla, our media person, was watching TV and telling me over the phone how the votes were going. And once I got to, I think the magic number was 218, I knew we were there. And that night we sent out the letter saying, we're going to do it for free. I'm calling for volunteers. And by Monday morning, a thousand lawyers had volunteered to represent victims for free. We ended up just the TLC volunteers, not not the groups that worked outside and other bar associations. Our group was responsible for about two and a half billion dollars going to families. We represented, I think, around 2,000 families. About half of those were personal injuries. We had lawyers from 50 states, five countries. They flew into to New York, D.C. to meet with clients and to attend their hearings with Ken Feinberg. Ken himself probably heard he must have personally heard a thousand cases. He was he was unbelievable. And he his appointment didn't come until oh a couple of weeks after we got the bill passed in Congress. 
And Teddy Kennedy was a really big part in Ken getting that appointment because they were close personal friends. And Teddy knew what a good job Ken would do. And he did. So we went on to represent these families over the course of the next probably two years. And it it was such a credit to the bar. People would spend hundreds of hours on their files. They'd hire economists. They'd hire doctors if there were a personal injury involved. They'd get affidavits from your boss if you were about to get a, a promotion. So we could prove up the fact that, yeah, his wages were X, but they were about to be X plus 50% because of this promotion. Lawyers did exactly what they do, and they they did it for free. It it was a magnificent, magnificent performance by the bar. The bar will never get enough credit for what they did. Leo, it, it sort of reminded me of the of the historical event Dunkirk, right? With with all the ships going out and trying to save the soldiers, all these lawyers from all over the country uh, really, really came to bear here to help victims and their families. What unexpected challenges did you all encounter during that time? Big challenge was getting people to sign up for the fund. That was that was a big one because there was a segment of the bar that was fighting it and urging people not to sign up. But the overarching issue was that people were the whole country was just devastated by this. People couldn't get themselves together. They couldn't think. So there was, we worked and worked for many, many months doing all kinds of radio things and uh, TV things in New York City to, to try to get people to sign up. And then at the very end, it was just an avalanche of filings and, and, and people came. And I think it's something like 98% of the people came to the fund at the end. And in terms of other difficult, there's no difficulty getting lawyers. I mean, lawyers are just such good people fundamentally. Yeah, there's a bad one now and then, but lawyers are in this business because it gives you the power to help people. And that feels good, whether or not you get paid. It feels really good to help other human beings. And that's what makes lawyers tick. And lawyers are risk takers. We all know that, especially on our our side of the versus. You know, they'll take on a case they're not going to get paid. They'll fly to New York. They'll pay for an economist themselves because it's the right thing to do. A lot of them felt in the end, as did I, that it was one of the most meaningful things I've done as a lawyer. We may not have uh, actually told our audience what TLC stands for is Trial Lawyers Care. And and that leads me to to this other area I'd like to just briefly talk about. This happened in 2001. Uh, our president was President George W. Bush. One of his main themes, campaign planks, issues upon which he ran was what you touched upon is tort reform, capping non-economic damages such as pain and suffering, eliminating uh, rights for trial rather than maybe uh, some type of mandated arbitration, all sorts of other limits. So that uh, at that time, I remember from my days here in Massachusetts on, on the, the local level, trial lawyers were being bashed left and right. And not only did that poor lady who spilled coffee in her lap become the symbol of what's wrong with the civil justice system, by the way, highly erroneously, if you know the facts of that case. So, you know, at that time, the image of trial lawyers, specifically plaintiff claimant contingency fee lawyers, was really in the crosshairs of, of the president. Yet 
So describe to me how important it was to have this fund be recognized not only unanimously by Congress, but also by the Bush White House, and to be able to work in, in, in concert with our, your and our sort of natural opponents? Well, that's, that's a great question. And I would say it, it wasn't an episode of lawyer bashing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 50 years doing this now. I can't believe it, but I'm 50 years doing this. And almost all of that 50 years, the tort fight has been going on. It started most heavily in the 80s is when it really got rolling and certainly in the 90s. So before Bush took office, it was a mantra. It was a political mantra of certain components of society, industry, big business, uh, companies that didn't want environmental regulations, didn't want tax limitations. So he ran on it, but you sort of had to run on it back then if you were running as a Republican presidential candidate. And so I think we do what we do and we don't, I tend not to think about my detractors and I don't care much about them. I'm going to do what I'm going to do and let my actions speak for me. And I I think most lawyers are like that. You know, most lawyers, vast majority of us work for ourselves. And there's a reason, you know, we don't answer to other people. We, we, nobody tells us what to do. And so he did run on, on that platform. It was as unsuccessful for him as it was for politicians before and since because it is philosophically unsound you know the extent to which he he believed that himself i don't even know but it wasn't coming from him it was coming from industry and it's always been there it was there in the in the 80s and the 90s it's still there now although it's quite interesting in the, in the in the trump campaigns it was not a mantra of of his campaign which i found very interesting. So it's it's kind of a fact of life out there that people try to detract, uh, to, uh, to disrespect lawyers, but you got to look at who's doing the disrespecting. And normally it's the people that we hold accountable. It's no wonder they don't, they don't like us. And I, you know, I hold that as a, a badge of honor. One of the things that surprised me uh, in our interview with, with Ken was that he didn't think that this type of legislation or compensation fund might work ever again in any other type of situation, even a traumatic one. Do you share that? Uh, do you think that this could be a model for future, you know, large scale tragedies or? Yeah. Yeah. Ken was sort of saying as a matter of public policy to create a, a fund for one class of victims when there are tragedies before, after that don't get funded. So as a matter of policy, how do you how do you react to those comments? If both Judd and I, I think, were surprised. Well, he's always held that position, number one. Number two, I love Ken Feinberg. I love the guy. I've done so much work with him. I have enormous respect for him. He's become a, a personal friend. But he and I disagree on this point. I don't have the numbers in mind. I would have looked them up if I knew the question was going to come up. But the entire fund costs $7 billion dollars. We just wound down a war that cost $1 trillion. And we were probably spending $7 billion a month. Now, these are wild guesses. Please don't hold them to me. But certainly in the course of a few months, we spent $7 billion in the war or on the war on terror. Now, why should 
a completely innocent cross-section of our population that happens to be sitting at their desk in a building pay the price for a terrorist attack that we're going to spend a trillion dollars addressing? Shouldn't we take care of our own people? Ken and I have always disagreed on that point. In certain cases, it's not the right solution. Take asbestos, for example. Those companies needed to be held and taken to task. They needed to be put out of business. They needed to have their insurance companies pay the price for what they did to Americans. So you need the tort system. But this was a mass murder, not a mass tort. So Ken and I disagree. If a hurricane devastates New Orleans, federal money goes down there to help. Billions of dollars of federal money goes down to help. It's, it's the natural human instinct to take care of your fellow man. So I disagree with Ken. We even offered the legislation never got through, but the, the, the federal building in Oklahoma City that was bombed, if you remember that, I, I don't recall the year, but the victims of that tragedy stepped up after this one to say, how about us? And we told Congress, we'll represent them for free. You set up a fund for them. We'll take care of them. We'll represent them for free. But Congress wouldn't do it. So I I disagree with Ken. We spend money on a lot of different things. Look at the bailouts we just did. Trillion dollars, a couple of trillion dollars in, in, in bailouts. Why would we not? I mean, 365 firemen killed on 9-11. We're not going to take care of them? Uh, no, I'm I'm sorry. First things first. Because this is workers' comp matters, it, it became apparent quickly talking to Ken that uh, the, the underlying foundation principle of the workers' comp system was kind of mirrored and then expanded upon by the fund. And I know you you folks have, uh, over at uh, me and Boyle certainly know workers' comp because it's connected to the work you do so well. Give us your overview of how you know, the general philosophy behind a workers' compensation system of scheduled awards, et cetera, might have served as some framework for the VCF. Well, it, the, the beauty of workers' comp is fault doesn't matter. If you're at work and you get hurt, you don't have to spend three years litigating the fact that the machine was badly designed as opposed to it being your fault. And that, that fundamental principle that we're not going to prove liability here, gets you directly to damages. So it, it's like the comp system. Now, the numbers were much, much bigger because, you know, the comp system has just been so legislated over and over again, not just in 1914 or whenever it originally was formed. But ever since then, there have been fights over certain limitations and uh, the percentage of average weekly wage. I mean, you know that better than I do. You know that inside out. But the beauty of this is we had we had 60 hours to write a bill. And we, we went for everything and we got everything. But you are absolutely right. It is like the comp system. We don't prove fault. Go right to damages. The difference is the damages were unlimited. Now, the Department of Justice pushed back in regulations and started putting limits on some of the damage components under the fund, even though the statute didn't do it. They put a $250,000 max on pain and suffering, for example, uh, on the wrongful death cases. So, they, you know, they, they fought back, but that's because we, the bill we got was completely un, 
limited. So philosophically, it comes from the same place that comp comes from. If I'm at work and I get hurt, somebody's got to take care of me. I can't go home and, and lose my job and lose my income and incur medical expenses. I got hurt at work. And so somebody's responsible for that. I might not get millions of dollars, but I'm also not going to lose my house. I'm not going to get, you know, my, have my car repossessed. I'm going to have something to live on. So I, I think the workers' comp model is, is quite parallel. Well, Leo, before we sign off, is there any, any thoughts you'd like to leave with us of any personal anecdotes, any particular family or uh, victim that you or your colleagues represented that perhaps stands out to exemplify the aspirations of this fund? Oh, uh, there's just there's just so many. About three weeks after 9-11, I was on the roof of a fire station next to the hole in the ground. It was still on fire. The the remains of the towers uh, was still on fire. It was an underground fire, but the smoke was billowing up. I was with the father of a woman who was on one of the planes, and she died leaving a husband and two little children. He had come down with me to New York. There was a uh, Paula Zahn was a TV reporter at the time, and she wanted to talk to a victim, and he agreed. So we went down, and he did the show, and then we went over to to um, the site and we're standing on the roof and there was a fireman up there and he looked at my client and came over and uh, said, did you, did you lose somebody? And Bob said, I, I did. I lost my daughter. And the fireman put his arms around him and said, I'm so sorry. I couldn't save her. And of course he, he had no chance to save her. She was in a plane, but he just felt this pain that as a fireman, he couldn't save Bob's daughter. There were a million moments like that that we saw and felt, and that just, you know, you, you never forget them. It was, it was an extraordinary time. Leo, I really want to thank you, just as I, you know, Alan and I thanked Ken last time, um, for what you did, um, what you continue to do really throughout your career, you know, we, we, we have heroes in movies, we have heroes in books. Uh, Atticus Finch comes to mind. And the trial work you've done and your compassion and empathy, as I think you just articulated but so beautifully, comes across as very much like a real-life real Atticus Finch. So thank you very much for joining us on Workers' Comp Matters today. Wow, that's, uh, that's very, very high praise and, uh, and uh, undeserved. I just... Uh, I'm another trial lawyer, and uh, I'm, I'm just proud to be one of you. So thank you for those kind words and for having me. And um, my thanks to all of the wonderful lawyers in this country for, for what they did on 9-11 and what they do every day for ordinary people. So thanks for having me. And to our audience, thank you again for tuning in. We look forward to our next uh, podcast here on Workers' Comp Matters on the Legal Talk Network. So please go out and make it a day that matters. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network. Your only choice for legal talk. Money, 
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.